Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. New developments in the investigation into the Biden family's business dealings. What prosecutors are now saying about a former FBI informant. A legal expert weighs in. Former President Trump confirms several possible running mates for this year's election. We bring you the names of the potential VP picks. The Texas Attorney General is suing a Catholic nonprofit that he claims is encouraging illegal immigration through its shelters. Unborn children are children, including frozen embryos. That's what the Alabama Supreme Court has ruled. How a break-in at a fertility clinic prompted the lawsuit. Farmers in Hungary are protesting green regulations imposed by the European Union. They also say laws aimed at supporting Ukraine are hurting them. Scientists are celebrating the 200th anniversary of the first formal naming of a dinosaur. We have a brief overview of what you need to know about the giants. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb. I'm sitting in for Chris Beers. And to begin the show, former President Donald Trump confirming several possible running mates for his 2024 White House bid. Trump explained what he's looking for in a possible VP pick during a Fox News town hall last night. Well, always the first quality has to be somebody that you think will be a good president, because if something should happen, you have to have somebody that's going to be a great president. The one thing that always surprises me is that the VP choice has absolutely no impact. It's whoever the president is. It Trump confirmed that he's considering various people, including biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, Senator Tim Scott, former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, and South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem. Trump also made clear that he won't pick former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley. In the past, there had been speculation that Trump might choose Haley as a running mate, but he explained that he's not considering that. In other news about the former president, Trump is accusing four Texas Republicans of being so-called rhinos. The acronym stands for Republicans in Name Only. The four congressmen voted to impeach the state's attorney general, Ken Paxton, last year. Trump is now endorsing four Republican candidates seeking to unseat those congressmen. The contenders getting the former president's support are Liz Case, Mike Olcott, Helen Kerwin, and Alan Schoolcraft. They also got the stamp of approval from Texas Governor Greg Abbott, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, and Paxton himself. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton announced yesterday that he's suing a Catholic NGO. He's accusing the nonprofit of encouraging illegal immigration and is seeking to remove its license. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton said Tuesday that he's seeking to end Annunciation House's operations in the Lone Star State. In a post on X, Paxton claimed NGOs are using taxpayer money to facilitate human smuggling across the border, and his lawsuit aims to hold these organizations responsible for worsening illegal immigration. Operating in El Paso, Catholic nonprofit Annunciation House describes itself as a home to thousands of refugees and migrant poor. The organization was started in the 1970s by a group of young adults. Since then, the organization has expanded into a network of shelters across El Paso. They say they provide assistance to newly arrived border crossers. That includes food, shelter, and legal and medical services. 
but Paxton's lawsuit claims the actual operations of Annunciation House are quite different. The lawsuit alleges the organization appears to be openly violating many provisions of law. These include allowing illegal immigrants to elude examination from immigration officers, encouraging migrants to enter the country by concealing or harboring them, and transporting them in a manner equivalent to human smuggling. Annunciation House responded to the Attorney General's actions by calling a press conference on Friday, February 24th. They called Paxson's position illegal, immoral, and anti-faith, and said the organization's work is central to El Paso. NTD reached out to Annunciation House for comment, but didn't receive a response before airtime. A former FBI informant who made corruption claims about President Biden and Hunter Biden said he got information from officials associated with Russian intelligence. That's according to a court filing by prosecutors yesterday. NCD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the case against Alexander Smirnov. Prosecutors in a court filing Tuesday said former FBI informant Alexander Smirnov claimed to have extensive and extremely recent contacts with Russian spies. They say he admitted officials associated with Russian intelligence were involved in passing a story about Hunter Biden and that Smirnov had planned to meet with one official during an upcoming overseas trip. But prosecutors with special counsel David Weiss's team did not reveal which story about Hunter Biden Smirnov allegedly got from the individuals. Smirnov is accused of falsely telling his handler that a Ukrainian energy company paid Hunter and Joe Biden $5 million each around 2015. This claim became central to the Republican impeachment inquiry against the president in Congress. He allegedly told the FBI in September that Hunter Biden was making phone calls in a hotel that was bugged in Kyiv, Ukraine. He says Russian intelligence officers would use the hotel to gather compromising information. Federal agents have rejected this claim. The court paper stated evidence against Smirnov was strong. Prosecutors have requested Smirnov, a dual U.S.-Israeli citizen, be detained until trial, arguing he can get a new passport from the Israeli embassy and leave the country. For now, a judge has allowed Smirnov to be released on electric monitoring. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. In the ongoing impeachment probe, President Biden's brother, James Biden, is testifying today behind closed doors. He'll likely face questions about loan repayment checks he wrote to the president. House Republicans have been pushing for his testimony, claiming that the Biden family received significant payments from foreign parties in places like China and Russia. The White House denies any wrongdoing, saying the president loaned his brother his own money, which was later repaid. And Regarding the former FBI informant, here to discuss this with us is Hans Monkey, an attorney, a doctor of law, and who also hosts the show Truth Over News on Epic TV. Hans, welcome. Great to have you with us. To begin with, please explain. Yeah, if you could start by explaining briefly the latest development in its context. Sure, I think we need to kind of uh, break this down into two parts. So this guy Smirnoff uh, was arrested um, a few days ago for lying to the FBI. And supposedly he lied, as your report uh, stated, uh, about um, the Bidens, that means Joe and Hunter Biden, getting a $5 million bribe each from Burisma. And the only reason why David uh, Wise alleges that was a lie is because Smirnoff said he heard the story in late 2015 or late 2016, so by itself, Smirnoff isn't really sure. And uh, Wise now says, well, he couldn't have heard the story until March of 2017. So that's the basis for that. So when we all saw that, we were like, well, that's, that's pretty weak. But then something happened yesterday, which kind of changed the complexion of this. Um, supposedly, after he was arrested, Smirnoff told the FBI that he had heard a story about Hunter Biden from Russian intelligence. Now, as your reporter said, it was a story. 
it could be any story. It could be, you know, Hunter Biden had whatever, some eggs for breakfast. You know, who knows? I mean, it could be anything at all. But of course, the corporate media has now blown that up into that being the bribery story. And, you know, Wise does not say that. So Wise kind of played the trick on everyone here by putting that in there. It doesn't mean anything. And um, everyone now assumes that this is Russia Gate 2.0. Yeah, that does sound like it could turn into a pretty huge story. What's the significance of all of this coming at this time and the implications, potential implications of it? It's hugely significant. Um, the fact, as I mentioned, that this guy was arrested and the, uh, the charges were you know, pretty weak. But now that they've drawn in this Russia intelligence stuff, um, which, by the way, he allegedly said after he was arrested. So, you know, he could have just been making stuff up because he knows that's what the FBI likes to hear or, you know, any number of reasons. Who knows? I mean, people do all kinds of weird things after they're arrested. But of course, this is huge for Democrats in terms of now they're able to pin this Russian intelligence on this FBI source, the very source who had come forward with uh, a Biden bribery allegation. Uh, so. It's, it's very helpful to Democrats, no doubt about that. And I mean, I, from my perspective, the pushback would be, well, the, the guy didn't say that. The guy didn't say that Russian intelligence planted stories about Hunter Biden and planted stories about Biden corruptions. So, you know, no one has said that he said that. It's just being twisted to mean that. But I think, you know, it's almost too late to do anything about it. If you look at the, the papers this morning, they're all saying that... Um, the Hunter information came uh, from Russian intelligence, which, again, David Wise isn't saying, Alexander Smirnov isn't saying, but the media is saying it. And just like Russiagate 1.0, this, this could just take on a life of its own. Yeah, so it looks like we are still needing very much more clarification of the actual facts. How likely is that? What exactly do we need? Uh, excellent question. Um, this could turn out to be really good for Democrats or really bad. So it depends on one thing, which is, is Alexander Smirnov going to fight this? If he's going to go to trial and we're going to have discovery and so on and so forth, and clearly this guy was in touch with uh, officials at Burisma, clearly he has a lot of insider information. So if he's going to go to trial, there's going to be a lot of dirty laundry that's going to be aired, including about the Biden. So that's going to be really bad for the Bidens. And we're going to find out what really happened, as you mentioned. However, if he pleads and makes a deal, you know, uh, as, as many of these people do, uh, then we're never ever going to find any out anything about what really happened. And then that narrative that we just described is the one that's going to stick, unfortunately. And just briefly, Hans, President, the president's brother is set to testify today. What do you expect to come from that? Uh, not much. I mean, the guy has been kind of an enigma. Um, he was clearly cashing in on the Biden name when we have all these uh, transactions where uh, m money was coming in from China and then Hunter split that money two ways, half to Hunter, half to uh, uh, Jim Biden. Um, but he's not going to admit to any of these things. He's going to say either nothing or he's going to say the, the, this was for uh, a genuine consultancy work which is what he charged it as. And by the way, those uh, um, transactions, the money that went from China via Hunter to Jim Biden, uh, were the subject of multiple uh, transaction, uh, suspicious transaction reports by Wells Fargo, uh, something you know that's kind of been brushed under the carpet. So again, he's either going to say, no, no, this was all very legitimate, or he's just not going to say anything at all. Ah, plenty to keep our eyes on anyhow. Thank you so much, Hans Manka, attorney and host of Truth Over News on Epic TV. Really appreciate it.
Thank you. And a showdown over the case files of unaccompanied alien children. House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan has subpoenaed Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on the case where the House Judiciary Committee is accusing the HHS of stonewalling their request to see important documents. The House Judiciary Committee is conducting oversight of what it sees as HHS's mismanagement of the placement of unaccompanied alien children. It says unvetted minors have committed heinous criminal acts against Americans. The committee says it has asked HHS for files on these cases, but calls the agency's response woefully inadequate. The committee shared some examples of crimes committed on X, writing, a 15-year-old boy was murdered in Frederick, Maryland by alleged MS-13 gang members who entered the U.S. illegally. Why doesn't HHS want the committee to know whether these illegal aliens had gang tattoos before they were released? And in another post it wrote, An illegal alien who was released by HHS to a sponsor was charged with assaulting and murdering Maria Gonzalez just weeks before her 11th birthday. Why is HHS obstructing the committee's investigation into this criminal illegal alien? The girl was allegedly sexually assaulted and strangled to death. The committee says it's been asking HHS since June 2023 for specific files on the unaccompanied alien minors who've been charged with crimes like theft, brutal assault, and murder. It says HHS responded in September but gave reasons like privacy concerns for not sharing the files. The committee says after repeated follow-ups and requests, HHS offered in November to allow some in-camera review of documents. That is, if the committee agreed not to photograph or otherwise record any documents. In-camera review means the review of records privately in a judge's chamber or in a courtroom. While reviewing the documents, committee staff found that HHS had blacked out large sections of the documents. The department said the redactions covered personal identifying information and personal health information. The committee says HHS blacked out information about whether specific minors had identifying scars, marks, or tattoos, information that it says can be indicative of gang affiliation. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem ordered National Guard troops to deploy to the southern border. In a statement yesterday, she said, quote, the border is a war zone, so we're sending soldiers. Noem said 60 of the state's National Guard soldiers will deploy to the U.S.-Mexico border later this spring. The deployment is on a rolling basis for a three-month period. She said their primary mission will be construction of a, a wall to stem the flow of illegal immigrants, drug cartels, and human trafficking into the U.S. This deployment will be South Dakota's fifth since Texas Governor Greg Abbott issued a call for help in combating the growing border crisis. U.S. Customs and Border Protection recorded two and a half million encounters at the border last year. And President Biden has pushed a campaign message that former President Donald Trump is a threat to democracy. But some voters say the warning is not sticking, at least not beyond the core Democratic base. And today's Daniel Monahan has more. Hispanic Center Director Raymond Santiago says there's only so much fear-mongering that can be done. I just think that the messaging has to shift. It's just, it's not landing. 
He says it's time to move on from messaging like, if you elect this person, everything will fall apart. To, this is what I'm going to do um, to continue to re provide relief because that's what the American people need right now is relief. Democratic voter Anna Kadama says it's a wasted message because most who are planning to vote for Biden already believe it. The challenges of, of a Trump presidency, I think, are real. I think we saw it already, what could happen. Democratic voter Susan Harry thinks Biden's messages are being heard by the people who want to hear them. I think Joe Biden's messages are being heard by the people that want to hear them. And I know this is a non-answer, but I think the people that don't want to hear them are going to hear what they want to hear. There's some people you're just not going to change. Independent voter Christian Miller thinks both sides are trying to evoke fear. I don't know. It's going to be, I guess, maybe who's more effective in, at doing so. Regardless of the election outcome, Miller says he believes the institutions are safe and strong enough to withhold the challenges. Republican voter Kurt Balch doesn't think Biden's message will get people to the polls and didn't see anything during Trump's presidency that would indicate he's an existential threat to America. I think we have four years of evidence that he wasn't a fascist dictator. Uh, people don't like him. I understand there's a lot of things not to like about the guy. I get it. The latest real clear polling averages show Trump leading Biden by less than two points. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. With the South Carolina Republican primary coming up this weekend, NTD News will be covering all the action. We'll have a lot prepared for you, including special guests, on-the-ground coverage, and the Data Hub. Join Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer on The Nation Decides 2024, live this Saturday, February 24th at 6 p.m. Eastern. And coming up, a Texas professor recently got his job back after being fired for teaching textbook biology. What the professor and his lawyer tell NTD about academic freedom. A luxury retail store robbed at gunpoint in New York City. The incident happened in broad daylight this week. We'll have more on that in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Alabama Supreme Court ruled last week that frozen embryos can be considered children under state law. The court says they're entitled to the same legal rights as other unborn children. In the majority 7-2 ruling, Justice Jay Mitchell wrote, Unborn children are children, without exception, based on developmental stage, physical location, or any other ancillary characteristics. The decision was issued in response to wrongful death suits brought against a fertility clinic in Mobile in 2021. This after a patient broke into an IVF freezer and dropped a number of trays. The ruling allows three couples to sue the facility for wrongful death. And a biology professor in Texas is being reinstated after a recent pink slip. After he was fired, he sued the school district for discrimination. Earlier, we spoke with Professor Johnson Varkey and his lawyer, Kayla Tony at First Liberty Institute. Professor Varkey, Kayla, thanks for joining us. Now, Professor, how does it feel being reinstated, getting your job back after being fired for teaching what used to be considered Biology 101? I am excited. I'm so thankful. 
and uh, I am ready to go back and teach. I'm excited for that decision. And how long did this actually take for you? Oh, it was almost, yeah, it's more than one year, one year, because I, I got the termination letter uh, in January 2023. Caleb, please break down this case for us and how you ultimately won. Yes, and thanks so much for having us on today. Dr. Varkey is a biology and anatomy professor at St. Philip's College in San Antonio, Texas. It is a public community college. He's taught biology for 20 years um, to a wide variety of students and um, received exemplary reviews. And all that changed in November 2022 when he was teaching basic biological principles about the reproductive system and four of his students walked out of his class. And just a few weeks later, he was fired without having an opportunity to meet with the students or hear any of their concerns. Um, lo and behold, a year later now, he's reinstated. And we're so happy to have gotten that win for him without even needing to go to court. Um, what happened in the interim, you might ask? Um, we sent a demand letter back in June, um, letting the college know that they had violated Title VII and the First Amendment when they fired Dr. Varkey. Um, and then because of all the media coverage that this case um, garnered over the summer and the fall, our understanding is that some members of Congress actually weighed in as well and requested his reinstatement. And then in January, we received word that um, he's been reinstated by the college. Professor, what exactly did you teach that the students had to complain and that the school had issue with? When we study reproductive system, we say that, uh, you know, I mentioned in the class that uh, uh, to perpetuate a human species, the sex has to be uh, between male and female. And uh, also, then according to the textbook, from the textbook, I mentioned that the life of uh, a child begins at the time of conception. So when I mentioned that, those two, three things, the students just walked out. Professor and Kayla, I'm going to ask you both a similar question, but Kayla, I'll start with you first. What is the legal significance of this win? For Dr. Varkey, it means he's back in the classroom, his First Amendment rights are vindicated, his record is clear, and he's once again free to fulfill his calling and, and teach students, which is what he loves to do. So this is a great win for our client without having to go to court. And in terms of the larger significance, I think it's a powerful message to colleges and really any workplace across America. People of faith are free to speak without fear of retribution or punishment. Professor, what is the significance of this win for teachers like you across the country and for academic freedom? Oh yeah, just like uh, Kayla said, it's a freedom for, so uh, teachers don't have to be afraid of uh, any repercussions if uh, uh, they teach what is the truth. So that's all I taught from the biology textbook. Professor Varkey, Kayla, thank you so much for your time today. And joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to give us the latest updates from the financial world. Yeah, okay. Don, thanks for joining us. Uh, what do you have for us today? Right, so I uh, just wanted to talk to you guys about a few quick things. And one is uh, Capital One's potential deal with Discovery Financial. And another quick update on 
a smart camera company mishap. We'll get to that later. So what I specifically wanted to talk to you guys about uh, in terms of Capital One's, Capital One's potential deal is that what it could mean for regular people like you and me. So first of all, if this deal is approved by uh, shareholders and regulators, uh, Capital One's acquisition will create uh, the biggest U.S. credit card company by loan volume. So that is significant here. And essentially the company sort of is just betting that its credit cards are in more people's wallets with this acquisition. Uh, at the moment, we're though still a long ways off from the deal actually being finalized, um, given the deal isn't expected to be complete until uh, 2024 or even early 2025. So that means Discover and Capital One customers shouldn't anticipate any immediate changes. So in the short term, things are going to stay the same. Uh, and there's still the possibility that the antitrust regulators uh, could, could push the deadline even further out. So in the near term, should uh, expect things to stay the same. But this does seem like big news. What, what could we expect further down the line? Right. So for starters, uh, when the deal is actually finalized down the road, uh, all Capital One credit cards or debit cards will be switched from MasterCard to the Discover uh, network within the first uh, few years. And this is according to the CEO of Capital One. So the end goal, is he end goal here is to get uh, more merchants to take Discover and uh, because it means uh, consumers uh, can get more benefits from doing that. So that's like getting more rewards from uh, those purchases and among other things. So all this actually hinges on the, the deal actually getting approved by regulators. Uh, so that, that's a big obstacle right now. Uh, but actually the deal could be well positioned to actually gain approval because uh, some lawmakers have accused Visa and MasterCard of having a monopoly on the market. So Capital One's deal could create uh, new competition as well. And lawmakers you know, always uh, like to see some new competition within a certain industry. And uh, the combination of Capital One and Discover would create the biggest US credit card issuer with around $250 billion in card balance. Oh, that's big. Yeah, I mean, that could be good for the consumers, too. A lot of choices between what cards to get. Now, earlier you mentioned a smart camera company. Uh, what's that about? Okay, so uh, in terms of that, uh, let me just uh, quickly give you an update. So it seems like hundreds of video camera owners may have had their video viewed by other people. So smart camera maker Wise sent uh, an email Monday explaining that an experienced an outage last Friday as cameras started to come back online. About 13,000 users saw thumbnail images for other people's cameras. About 1,500 of them actually clicked on those images. And in some, some of those cases, they were able to actually view footage from those cameras. And Wise says that it was due to a third-party caching client library it uh, recently began using. But uh, this actually isn't the first lapse in security for the company. Back in 2019, a data leak exposed millions of customer emails um, and addresses as well, email addresses. Yeah, we're seeing more and more of this, I feel, each day. And you've really got to keep an eye out for it. And just what can you do about something like that? I mean, yeah, sometimes you just have to have to hope it doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. Fingers crossed for everybody. <laughs> All right. Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Thank you for joining us again. Thanks, Thank Don. You. Great to see you. Now, brazen theft in broad daylight. A high end retailer in Manhattan's meatpacking district was robbed at gunpoint on Monday. 
One resident said she was so shocked she mistook the scene for a film set. NTD's Chris Beers spoke with New Yorkers after the incident. Armed robbers held up this Gucci store yesterday afternoon in broad daylight. The three people parked their car just right over there, got out with guns, went inside and stole over $51,000 worth of luxury goods. Then they got back in their car and sped down this street to get away. Let's hear what New Yorkers have to say about that. I was walking here at noon yesterday on a sunny day and I see a guy coming out with a gun in his hand and a bag in the other. And I said, what's going on? It must be a movie or must be a, a joke or something. No, they robbed this store. And I saw the getaway car pull up in front of Gucci and, you know, the guy's just hauling, just throwing all his stuff in the, in the um, trunk and in the car and then they just sped off like, like lightning. I mean, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was just unbelievable. Um, it's sad that um, things like that happen in, in our city. Um, it's unfortunate that, um, you know, somebody will at some point probably get arrested for that. It's absolutely terrifying. I think it's, uh, I wouldn't have expected it in such a beautiful neighborhood like this, and especially a high-end store to see so much get stolen and just, it's, it's scary. The Council on Criminal Justice report says New York City takes the cake in reported shoplifting incidents. Between 2019 and 2023, that number was up 64%. Los Angeles was second with a 61% increase. How do New York City area retailers feel about this? A lot of them are very upset. We have a supermarket in South Broadway. Um, it's a, a Dominican-owned supermarket, the only supermarket in that area. They get hit every day. Sometimes they don't even contact the police because they think that there's not going to be any consequences. They have to go to the police report, fill out uh, paperwork, which takes about one or two hours from your job. So a lot of the retailers, they don't even bother because they know that this person is going to be back out tomorrow. People feel, the people that are committing, the perpetrators, they feel that if they uh, take something from a retailer that, you know, they know what amount they can take. If it's less than a thousand dollars, they think it's fine. There's no consequences. I don't know if it's because of COVID, what it is that uh, I think that the perpetrators know the law better than a lot of the business owners. The same Council on Criminal Justice report I mentioned earlier shows St. Petersburg, Florida has a decrease of 78% of reported incidents of retail theft. Governor Kathy Hochul has a $45 million plan to address retail theft in New York City. It entails support for law enforcement, the courts, and retailers. This is Chris Beers reporting for NTD News in New York City. Up next, farmers in Hungary are protesting EU regulations. Why they say laws aimed at supporting Ukraine are hurting them. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange facing his last chance to stop extradition to the U.S. His wife today calling for his release from jail. Germany could soon take a controversial approach to free speech regulation, which critics say would ban prayer in some places. NTD spoke with Alliance Defending Freedom and others about a new bill that centers around abortion clinics.
India, a strategic partner of the U.S., bought $37 billion of unsanctioned crude oil from, Lush, from Russia last year. That's according to CNN. The sales mean Russia is entering its third year of war in Ukraine with an unprecedented amount of cash. What's the significance of this and how should the U.S. respond? Earlier, I spoke with Brandon Weikert, geopolitical analyst and author of The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. Brandon, it's great to see you. Now, according to analysis, Russia sold a record $37 billion of crude oil sales to New Delhi, India last year. Now, a, New Delhi is a U.S. strategic partner. So what is the geopolitical significance of this and how could it impact U.S. economy? Well, it's really, it shouldn't be that significant. I mean, this is fairly predictable. The Indians have long valued a policy of balancing off interests against each other. They don't want to become dependent on any one country, even the United States, going back to their colonial history with Britain. The Russians, on the, for their part, are naturally going to seek new avenues to send their natural gas and oil resources toward now that the Europeans have cut them off. So all of this was predictable. But what we need to be focused on is why India is doing this. It's because they really don't want to have to be reliant. And the other issue is they, that we need India to stay happy so that they continue to be a partner of ours in containing the far greater threat that is China. We should not be alienating India over their trade with Russia, which goes back decades. Right now, and considering the restrictions and sanctions due to the Russia-Ukraine war, what, what would you say led up to this record amount of oil purchase from India? Well, India is a massive and growing modern economy, and they need more cheap energy to continue their growth. And we should be encouraging that because a more dynamic, economically prosperous, independent India is an India that will be an even stronger counterweight to China's rise in the Indo-Pacific. And that, again, is the key here. Russia is so yesterday. The West needs to focus on containing China, and India is an integral component of the containment of China. Yeah. Now, in China, there's a cyber threat group that's reportedly said to um, target U.S. infrastructure. So how might this play out, I mean, with, with China? Like, where, where does India play into this? Well, India is also a massive technology power. Uh, our uh, IT infrastructure is heavily integrated with India's, and so India is an excellent possible partner in peace uh, with cyber warfare capabilities, basically beefing up our cyber defenses. So as China starts doing these nefarious uh, operations against the United States over the the uh, electronic battle sp space or the cyber domain, uh, we need allies just like we do in any other domain. And India is a great potential partner, but they won't be a partner if we start alienating them over their business dealings with Russia, which I must insist goes back many decades, long before India was ever partnered with the United States. So Washington needs to account for that. Now, as the Russia-Ukraine war enters its third year, what might the Kremlin do with the funds? Well, they're certainly going to use it to beef up their war machine, and they're going to use it to enhance their domestic economy. Russia has proven false 
the neoconservative, neoliberal assumption that the Russian Federation would collapse the moment sanctions were imposed after Russian troops invaded. Russia is stronger today now than it was in February 2022. It is more self-reliant, and its military has proven that it is, unfortunately, stronger and more capable than what we thought it would be at this point in the war. And I believe it is going to win the war in Ukraine at this point. All right. Brandon Whitechurch, geopolitical analyst and author of The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Next, we head to Europe with some short headlines from the UK, Turkey and other countries. European Union members approved a 13th package of Ukraine-related sanctions against Russia today. The move bans nearly 200 entities and individuals. Its targets are roughly split between entities that are part of Russia's military-industrial complex and those allegedly involved in trafficking and kidnapping Ukrainian children. Beyond that, two more entities were also added, one North Korean and one Belarusian firm. Hundreds of Hungarian farmers protest this month against green regulations imposed on them by the EU and the suspension of import taxes on Ukrainian agricultural products for another year to 2025. Import taxes for Ukrainian grains were originally suspended in 2022. That was done to support Ukraine's economy following the Russian invasion. But it's been, but it's been a point of contention for European farmers who say it creates unfair competition. The protesting farmers held banners criticizing Brussels and the EU at a border crossing point with Ukraine. Former WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange faces his last chance to stop his extradition from Britain to the U.S. American prosecutors want him tried on 18 counts related to the release of confidential U.S. military records. Britain approved his extradition to the U.S. in 2022. His legal team is trying to overturn that approval at a two-day hearing. Their argument is that previous judges failed to address their case, that the extradition was politically motivated. Here's Assange's wife outside London's Royal Courts of Justice today. This part be brought to an end and that um, the courts uh, allow Julian to be free. Uh, he's a political prisoner and he needs his freedom. He has been in prison for five years. Turkey's first fifth-generation fighter jet completed its first flight today. That's part of the country's efforts to upgrade its air force. NATO member Turkey launched its project to produce a national combat aircraft in 2016. As of today, it shared a video showing a fighter jet taking off and then returning to an airbase in North Ankara. The new fighter jet will initially be powered by two electric engines. These are also being used on fourth-generation Lockheed Martin F-16 jets. Critics say a new bill in Germany would effectively ban praying or speaking to people about pregnancy within 300 feet of abortion clinics. NTD's Daniel Monahan spoke with Alliance Defending Freedom International, the Thomas More Legal Center, and International Planned Parenthood about the case. The new bill plans to introduce vaguely defined buffer zones. It would ban behavior that could be perceived as confusing or disturbing within 300 feet of abortion providers. Offenders would be fined up to 5,000 euros. Erin Mercino, a constitutional law attorney at the Thomas More Law Center, sees a dangerous precedent in the German legislation. We definitely see a slippery slope where, you know, just silent prayer is being prosecuted 
and criminalized with these laws, it's, it's really terrifying. And the slippery slope is um, you have a point of view that is a minority point of view, and you can no longer speak peacefully um, about your different point of view. Mercino says such laws silence opposition and that today it's abortion, but tomorrow it could be any other speech. The attorney says everyone should be able to speak their opinion in the public square. And there should be a conversation about different opinions. Why are these countries so afraid to have a different opinion spoken within 300 feet of the abortion abortion clinic? Why is there not a discussion allowed? Mercino highlights what she sees as the potential for abuse in how a similar law in the UK is enforced. See an army veteran right now charged um, for simply praying across the street. And we saw a Catholic priest who was charged, who all he was doing again was praying across the street and he parked within the 150 meters with a bumper sticker on his car that said unborn lives matter. A now viral video from England shows the arrest of a volunteer, Isabel Von Spruce, who was praying near an abortion facility. Are you protesting? No. Are you here to pray for the lives of unborn children? Ludwig Brühl is from Germany and serves as communications officer for the legal firm Alliance Defending Freedom International. He says the German law is built on shaky ground. So the government was asked about how many incidents of harassment would have taken place, and they had to admit that there was no data, no numerical findings. And this really leads to the fact that the German government wants to ban something, but they don't know why and what exactly. Brühl says groups like Pro Familia, the German branch of International Planned Parenthood Federation, have been behind the push for what he calls censorship zones. According to Brühl, abortions are profitable for Planned Parenthood. We know that just offering help or even silent prayer um, can can stop people from having an abortion. And Pro Familia says it welcomes the legislation. It says in Germany, women have to undergo counseling three days prior to getting an abortion, which must take place at a state-approved center. It argues so-called sidewalk counselors push only their vision on the women, whereas the mandated counselors are more neutral. Pro Familia says people praying at abortion clinics puts unfair pressure on women who can be distressed by the photos of unborn children displayed. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Up ahead, scientists are celebrating the 200th anniversary of the first formal naming of a dinosaur. We have a brief overview of what you need to know about the giants. A scientific mission to discover new marine species off the coast of New Zealand is underway. Researchers are focusing on an underexplored area more than three miles beneath the surface. More shortly, here on NTD News Today. years ago, the first dinosaur was named. Since then, dinosaur science has flourished, providing insight into what these creatures looked like, how they lived, and what doomed them. We now know dinosaurs walked the planet from about 231 million years ago to 66 million years ago. But even after two centuries, the research is far from done. Here's a brief of what you need to know.
1824, English naturalist and theologian William Buckland addressed the Geological Society of London, describing an enormous jaw and limb bones unearthed in a slate quarry in a village near Oxford. Buckland recognised that these fossils belonged to a huge bygone reptile and gave it a formal scientific name, Megalosaurus, meaning great lizard. The actual word dinosaur would not be coined until the 1840s. And that moment really was the beginning of our cultural fascination with dinosaurs, which continues today. In the 1960s, the identification of the smallish meat-eating dinosaur, Deinonychus, shook up dinosaur science, helping inaugurate a research period called the Dinosaur Renaissance. It showed that dinosaurs could be small and agile. The smallest ones were smaller than pigeons. The biggest ones were heavier than Boeing 737 airplanes. But a lot of them would not have looked like reptiles at all. A lot of dinosaurs were covered in feathers. Some dinosaurs had wings. And those kind of fossils would have been unfathomable to Buckland. And then there's the mystery of how dinosaurs became extinct. It had long puzzled scientists with various hypotheses offered. In 1980, researchers identified a layer of sediment dating precisely to the end of the dinosaur age. It contained high concentrations of iridium, an element common in meteorites, indicating a huge space rock had struck Earth. The Chicxulub crater in Mexico, stretching 112 miles wide, was identified as the impact site of the asteroid that wiped out three quarters of Earth's species, including the dinosaurs. More than 2,000 dinosaur species are now known, and paleontology is a vibrant international science. And a scientific mission to discover new marine species off the coast of New Zealand is underway. Researchers are looking for ocean life in an underexplored area called the Bounty Trough, more than three miles beneath the surface. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. New Zealand's Cape Palliser coastline is a haven for wildlife. Fur seals nap on the rocks while plants flourish beneath the waves. The scientific mission aims to discover new species. This is the Ocean Census Bounty Trough Expedition. Um, we are going out with Ocean Census to try and accelerate the discovery of species in the deep sea. Um, so we're going to a very underexplored area of New Zealand, um, which is called the Bounty Trough. Scientists from the Ocean Census Organization have teamed up with New Zealand's National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research. We've got various different bits of equipment on the ship. We've got a deep-toed imaging system camera so we can take video and still footage of the animals on the seafloor and the habitats that we're seeing down there. And we have various different types of equipment to sample animals. The plan is to go down more than three miles to search for undiscovered species of coral, sponges, fish, mollusks, sea stars and urchins. We use things like DNA sequencing to figure out, you know, where our animals fit in terms of the tree of tree of life. And that really helps us to figure out whether we've got something new or something that's already been sampled. The team is spending a total of 21 days aboard the research vessel. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com.
welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. The United Nations top court considering a case on the Israeli-Palestinian question. Find out more about the U.S. stance. Former President Trump confirms several possible running mates for this year's election. We bring you the names of the potential VP picks. In Nevada, some voters didn't cast a ballot in the recent primaries, but their vote reportedly showed up as counted in the system. How state officials are responding. A wrongful death suit against a fertility clinic leads a state Supreme Court to protect frozen embryos as children. A course on China's way of war offered to the U.S. Army Pacific for the first time with the goal of better understanding the Chinese military. A Tokyo fish market known for its vast bounty of seafood expands. A new restaurant and spa complex is opening its doors to shoppers. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb. I'm sitting in for Chris Beers. Great to have you with us, David. And to begin the show, the International Court of Justice is hearing a case on Israel's territorial claims to Gaza and the West Bank. The Biden administration today making its arguments before the United Nations top court. The court should not find that Israel is legally obligated to immediately and unconditionally withdraw from occupied territory. The court can address the questions before it within the established framework based on the land for peace principle and within the parameters of established principles of occupation law. In 2022, the UN General Assembly asked the World Court to issue a non-binding opinion on the legal consequences of what they call Israeli occupation. The court was not asked to issue an opinion about the withdrawal of Israeli troops from the disputed territories, but many states participating in the hearings have called on Israel to do so. Russia, for example, argued before the court that Israel must stop all settlement activities in the West Bank. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejects international unilateral declarations of a Palestinian state. Israel's parliament today voted overwhelmingly to support this position. And the Pentagon has acknowledged after a month of U.S.-led airstrikes, the Houthi terrorist group in Yemen is still capable of launching significant attacks. This week, the terror group damaged a ship that's known in danger of sinking on a critical shipping route in the Red Sea and shot down a U.S. drone worth tens of millions of dollars. Here's the Deputy Pentagon Press Secretary yesterday. Initial indications are that it was shot down by a Houthi surface-to-air missile. In terms of um, recovery options, I know CENTCOM is looking into that, um, but I don't believe it has been recovered at this time. Our attacks are getting more sophisticated. That was the first time, as CENTCOM uh, put out, I think it was on Saturday, that the first time that they used an underwater unmanned vehicle to try and launch an attack. So absolutely, the attacks are sophisticated, their weapons are sophisticated, and we know where they're coming from. Uh, we know that Iran is continuing to supply them. U.S. Central Command says it shot down 10 bomb-carrying Houthi drones and a cruise missile so far this week. The military says it also hit a Houthi surface-to-air missile launcher and a drone ready to be launched. The Pentagon says coalition strikes are having an impact, but that the Houthis still have a very large inventory and are going to continue to use it. 
And here to speak with us about the state of the conflict in the Red Sea is Brent Sadler, Senior Research Fellow for Naval Warfare and Advanced Technology in the Allison Center for National Security at the Heritage Foundation. Brent, welcome. Great to have you with us. To begin with, what's the significance of this latest counterattack in your estimation? Well, well, the latest attack has probably been one of the more successful of the Houthis on commercial shipping. Uh, much of it indiscriminate, despite their protestations to the contrary. Uh, the ship right now, much like many of the, the cargo-carrying vessels through the, the Babo Mandeb Strait and through the Red Sea, are owned is actually owned and operated and flagged by three different organizations and entities. Uh, very complex, but again, the ship is at the risk of, of sinking. The reports from the Houthis are that they have been able to assure the safety of the sailors, at least those from the crew that have made their way to the hands of the Houthis. And so what, what factors do you think are contributing to where we're at right now in the Red Sea? And, and how do you think we need to go forward to address this effectively? Well, I think the, the goal remains the same, and that is to put an end to these attacks on commercial shipping through the Red Sea by the Houthis. In, in order to do that, there's two things that have to happen at the same time. One, uh, the U.S. military and its allies like the U.K. and perhaps others that are operating warships in the area need to continue to go after the Houthis' ability to target and to attack shipping in the, in the Babo Mendem Straits. At the same time, prevent them from getting resupplied in such weapons by Iran. That task, however, is, has not been successfully uh, implemented in the past, and it certainly doesn't appear today. It would require cutting off overland smuggling routes into Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen, and of course, all the ocean-bound routes in which, like the Dow that was uh, two special forces uh, SEALs were killed trying to do surveys on or inspections, means cutting off all of the seaward uh, routes into Yemen as well. And what would that take? What are the factors that need to fall into place or be arranged for this to happen to prevent that connection or that type of connection with Iran? Mm. Well, there's already a UN mandate. There's already international law to include customary law for ships that are suspected of invo being involved in smuggling or piracy to do the inspections and to stop all shipping going in or coming out of Yemen. Uh, that already exists. The problem is getting more ships to be able to execute it. Given the damage that the Houthis are, are, are inflicting on global shipping and the fact that you've got countries like Bangladesh, Indonesia, uh, and of course France and, other, and numerous other countries all there, I think starting to enforce more effectively a blockade of Yemen and the Houthis specifically is probably more in the realm of possible than it has ever been in the past. And just more broadly, considering your deep study of naval warfare and advanced technologies, and these both being factors right now, what would be your advice to U.S. leadership about how to resolve this issue and move forward, come out, out of it stronger? Well, I mean, the first thing is, is to, to understand that the root cause of all of the chaos that we're seeing right now from Hamas's attack on October 7th, the proxy attacks against U.S. forces in Syria and Iraq, and of course, the Houthis' attacks on shipping in Yemen all originate from and are inspired by the mullahs in Tehran. Without addressing that, it'll just be a, another case, another place, and another time. So that's the core thing, to identify that problem and actually go after it in a meaningful way. The current administration has gone 180 degrees and tried to encourage and entice and to supply the mullahs in Tehran 
with additional money and access to markets and some false hope of, of securing some nuclear deal. So that's job number one is to change policy path with regards to Iran. The military operations right now, they need to be invigorated against the Houthis, their capacities, and there needs to be a multinational effort that's much more substantive than what we've seen so far to cut off all of the resupply of weapons to the, to the Houthis. All right, that's all we have time for, unfortunately. But thank you very much, Brent Sadler, Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Really appreciate it. Coming up in Nevada, some voters didn't cast a ballot in the recent primaries, but their vote reportedly showed up as counted in the system. How state officials are responding after the break. Former President Donald Trump confirming several possible running mates for his 2024 White House bid. Trump explained what he's looking for in a possible VP pick during a Fox News town hall last night. Well, always the first quality has to be somebody that you think will be a good president, because if something should happen, you have to have somebody that's going to be a great president. The one thing that always surprises me is that the VP choice has absolutely no impact. It's whoever the president is. It's Trump confirmed that he's considering various people, including biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, Senator Tim Scott, former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, and South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem. Trump also made clear that he won't pick former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley. In the past, there had been speculation that Trump might choose Haley as a running mate, but he explained that he's not considering that. And in other news about the former president, Trump is accusing four Texas Republicans of being so-called Rhinos. The acronym stands for Republicans in name only. The four congressmen voted to impeach the state's attorney general, Ken Paxton, last year. Trump is now endorsing four Republican candidates seeking to unseat those congressmen. The contenders getting the former president's support are Liz Case, Mike Olcott, Helen Kerwin, and Alan Schoolcraft. They also got the stamp of approval from Texas Governor Greg Abbott, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, and Paxton himself. That's as the Texas Attorney General announced yesterday he's suing a Catholic NGO. Paxton is accusing the nonprofit of encouraging illegal immigration, and he's seeking to remove its license. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton said Tuesday that he's seeking to end Annunciation House's operations in the Lone Star State. In a post on X, Paxton claimed NGOs are using taxpayer money to facilitate human smuggling across the border and his lawsuit aims to hold these organizations responsible for worsening illegal immigration. Operating in El Paso, Catholic nonprofit Annunciation House describes itself as a home to thousands of refugees and migrant poor. The organization was started in the 1970s by a group of young adults. Since then, the organization has expanded into a network of shelters across El Paso. They say they provide assistance to newly arrived border crossers. That includes food, shelter, and legal and medical services. But Paxton's lawsuit claims the actual operations of Annunciation House are quite different. The lawsuit alleges the organization appears to be openly violating many provisions of law. These include allowing illegal immigrants to elude examination from immigration officers, encouraging migrants to enter the country by concealing or harboring them, and transporting them in a manner equivalent to human smuggling. 
Annunciation House responded to the Attorney General's actions by calling a press conference on Friday, February 24th. They called Paxson's position illegal, immoral, and anti-faith, and said the organization's work is central to El Paso. NTD reached out to Annunciation House for comment, but didn't receive a response before airtime. How many illegal immigrants have entered the U.S. since President Biden took office? A new report puts the figure at over 7 million. Fox News released the analysis yesterday. It says there were almost 7.3 million southwest border encounters during the Biden administration. The data comes from Customs and Border Protection. That total is larger than the population of 36 U.S. states, including Iowa, Maryland, and Tennessee. And it doesn't include the so-called gotaways who evaded law enforcement. They're believed to number 1.8 million. As the border crisis continues, the Biden administration today expanded visa restrictions for transportation operators facilitating illegal immigration. And a showdown over the case files of unaccompanied immigrant children. House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan has subpoenaed Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on the case where the House Judiciary Committee is accusing the HHS of stonewalling their request to see important documents. The House Judiciary Committee is conducting oversight of what it sees as HHS's mismanagement of the placement of unaccompanied alien children. It says unvetted minors have committed heinous criminal acts against Americans. The committee says it has asked HHS for files on these cases, but calls the agency's response woefully inadequate. The committee shared some examples of crimes committed on X, writing, A 15-year-old boy was murdered in Frederick, Maryland by alleged MS-13 gang members who entered the U.S. illegally. Why doesn't HHS want the committee to know whether these illegal aliens had gang tattoos before they were released? And in another post it wrote, An illegal alien who was released by HHS to a sponsor was charged with assaulting and murdering Maria Gonzalez just weeks before her 11th birthday. Why is HHS obstructing the committee's investigation into this criminal illegal alien? The girl was allegedly sexually assaulted and strangled to death. The committee says it's been asking HHS since June 2023 for specific files on the unaccompanied alien minors who've been charged with crimes like theft, brutal assault, and murder. It says HHS responded in September but gave reasons like privacy concerns for not sharing the files. The committee says after repeated follow-ups and requests, HHS offered in November to allow some in-camera review of documents. That is, if the committee agreed not to photograph or otherwise record any documents. In-camera review means the review of records privately in a judge's chamber or in a courtroom. While reviewing the documents, committee staff found that HHS had blacked out large sections of the documents. The department said the redactions covered personal identifying information and personal health information. The committee says HHS blacked out information about whether specific minors had identifying scars, marks, or tattoos, information that it says can be indicative of gang affiliation. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem ordered National Guard troops to deploy to the southern border. In a statement yesterday, she said, quote, the border is a war zone, so we're sending soldiers. 
Noam said 60 of the state's National Guard soldiers will deploy to the U.S.-Mexico border later this spring. The deployment is on a rolling basis for a three-month period. She said their primary mission will be construction of a wall to stem the flow of illegal immigrants, drug cartels, and human trafficking into the U.S. This deployment will be South Dakota's fifth since Texas Governor Greg Abbott issued a call for help in combating the growing border crisis. U.S. Customs and Border Protection recorded two and a half million encounters at the border last year. And Rudy Giuliani asked a judge yesterday to rule in his favor or grant a new trial in a lawsuit brought by two Georgia election workers. He was ordered to pay $148 million for falsely accusing them of election fraud. A federal jury in Washington ordered Giuliani to pay the two workers for reputational and emotional harm. They found he falsely claimed they rigged votes against former President Trump. The former New York mayor filed the motion after declaring bankruptcy. The bankruptcy judge gave him permission to challenge the damages as long as he funded it with donations instead of his own funds. Other lawsuits against Giuliani have been paused because of the bankruptcy proceedings. He was a leading member in Trump's legal team that sought to challenge 2020 election results. The jury handed down the defamation verdict in December after testimony from the election workers. They alleged they received racist threats after Giuliani accused them of improperly counting ballots. And New York State Attorney General Letitia James had some strong words yesterday on the fraud trial ru ruling against former President Donald Trump. James says she's prepared to seize Trump's assets, including his skyscrapers, if he's unable to find the cash to pay off the over $350 million fine. A New York judge last week ordered Trump to pay the fine after ruling that he committed repeated and persistent fraud. The judge said the former president overstated his net worth to obtain better loan terms. Trump denies all wrongdoing and is appealing the fine. He has accused James of bias. Trump's appeal of the judgment may focus on his argument that there were no actual victims from the alleged conduct in the case. More than $2 million in legal bills. That's what former President Trump's leadership PAC paid out last month. The Political Action Committee Save America paid the largest amount of nearly $600,000 to the law firm John Lauro. Lauro is representing the former president in the federal election case brought by special counsel Jack Smith. Last year alone, Save America spent more than $55 million on legal bills. That accounts for nearly 85% of its spending. Trump racked up an additional $1.9 million in unpaid legal bills at the end of January. That's according to a filing last night with federal regulators. And Republicans are challenging the rules for using absentee ballots in New York State. Governor Kathy Hochul now moved to dismiss an appeal filed by the plaintiffs. Hochul signed the Early Mail Voter Act in September of last year. On the same day, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik filed an order to show cause in the Albany Supreme Court. She challenged the law's legitimacy under New York State Constitution. After a judge ruled that provisions in the Early Mail Voter Act were constitutional, Stefanik filed an appeal. She and other Republican plaintiffs alleged that the Early Mail Voter Act violates the state constitution because it allows for absentee voting without restrictions. If Albany's appellate division grants Hochul's motion, Republicans plan to appeal the state's highest court, the New York Court of Appeals. 
And Nevada's Secretary of State office commenting on reports of numerous voter irregularities found on Sunday. Officials say the issues were caused by an error that's now being fixed. Local media reported that over the past weekend, several individuals said they never voted in the primary or mailed in their ballots, but the state system showed their vote was counted. The Secretary of State's office on Monday told media outlet 8 News Now that it became aware of possible technical issues. It said elections and IT staff began working on the issue immediately, and they're trying to resolve the issue as soon as possible, promising further updates. And President Biden has pushed a campaign message that former President Donald Trump is a threat to democracy. But some voters say the warning is not sticking, at least not beyond the core Democratic base. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more. Hispanic Center Director Raymond Santiago says there's only so much fear-mongering that can be done. I just think that the messaging has to shift. It's just, it's not landing. He says it's time to move on from messaging like, if you elect this person, everything will fall apart. To, this is what I'm going to do um, to continue to re provide relief, because that's what the American people need right now is relief. Democratic voter Anna Kadama says it's a wasted message because most who are planning to vote for Biden already believe it. The challenges of, of a Trump presidency, I think, are real. I think we saw it already, what could happen. Democratic voter Susan Harry thinks Biden's messages are being heard by the people who want to hear them. I think Joe Biden's messages are being heard by the people that want to hear them. And I know this is a non-answer, but I think the people that don't want to hear them are going to hear what they want to hear. There's some people you're just not going to change. Independent voter Christian Miller thinks both sides are trying to evoke fear. I don't know. It's going to be, I guess, maybe who's more effective in, at doing so. Regardless of the election outcome, Miller says he believes the institutions are safe and strong enough to withhold the challenges. Republican voter Kurt Balch doesn't think Biden's message will get people to the polls and didn't see anything during Trump's presidency that would indicate he's an existential threat to America. I think we have four years of evidence that he wasn't a fascist dictator. Uh, people don't like him. I understand there's a lot of things not to like about the guy. I get it. The latest real clear polling averages show Trump leading Biden by less than two points. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Congress has yet to make additional funds available to states ahead of the November presidential election. Top election officials from New Mexico, Michigan, Minnesota and Mississippi share their thoughts on the state's need for federal funding for elections, especially for cybersecurity and physical security. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more. New Mexico Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse Oliver says elections are critical federal infrastructure. The cybersecurity threats and physical security threats to the election process are inherently a federal and national issue. Toulouse Oliver says consistency is important because states need predictability. When we create programs, we want to be able to sustain those programs not just for a year or for two years. We want to sustain them for the long term. Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon says he's grateful for federal funding, but... The problem is the, the reliability of that money. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson says partners in the federal government have done so little to provide them with adequate funding. And we rarely, if ever, get what we as the officials on the front lines have said we need. 
But Benson did say Michigan was fortunate in 2020 to get pandemic relief funding through the CARES Act, adding she doesn't believe they could have gotten through the year safely and securely without it. Mississippi Secretary of State Michael Watson says he doesn't like the strings-attached approach from the federal government. I can't stand it. I think that gets us in a lot of trouble and uh, violates a lot of constitutional principles. But Watson says he doesn't mind a partnership in areas where the state plays a small role, like in cybersecurity, as long as states are the ones that have the ability to spend the money. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. With the South Carolina Republican primary coming up this weekend, NTD will be covering the, all the action. We'll have a lot prepared for you, including special guests, on-the-ground coverage, and the Data Hub. Join Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer on The Nation Decides 2024 live this Saturday, February 24th at 6 p.m. Eastern. And up ahead, President Biden's brother, James Biden, testifying today behind closed doors on Capitol Hill in the House-led impeachment probe. Louis Martinez standing by in D.C. Courses on communism could become mandatory in Florida if a bill gets the green light. Its sponsor says schools must make sure that teenagers don't see communism in a positive light. And the president's younger brother, James Biden, speaking to lawmakers behind closed doors today as part of the impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden led by House Republicans. Lawmakers are probing whether the president and his family made money through political influence. Our Washington, D.C. correspondent, Louis Martinez, joins us now from Capitol Hill. Louis, what do we know so far? Steph, David, yes, today was a big day for the House-led impeachment inquiry against President Joe Biden, his younger brother, uh, James Biden was interviewed this morning around 10.15 a.m. He entered the O'Neill House office building. Uh, members of the uh, House Oversight Committee interviewed James Biden, and specifically today, the line of questioning surrounding uh, a check that James Biden, the president's brother, sent uh, the current president uh, in 2017, a check for $200,000. This check was made the same day that James Biden received $200,000 from a company called AmeriCorps. Now, James Biden and his lawyers allege this payment from James Biden to President Joe Biden, uh, well, then former Vice President Joe Biden, uh, was a repayment for a loan. Uh, and of course, also Democratic uh, Congressman, the, the ranking member of the House Oversight Committee, Jamie uh, Raskin alleges this is this is all a political ploy by House Republicans. Let's listen what uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin had to say. Well, if Chairman Comer would like us to abandon this failed investigation and look at the whole question of influence peddling in Washington and lobbying in Washington and emoluments clause violations and collection of money from foreign governments, I'm all for it. We we had to issue our own report as the Democratic uh, membership on the committee about Donald Trump's collection of foreign government emoluments. We've So Congressman Jamie's Raskin is alleging uh, that what well, was actually calling House Republicans uh, to uh, be done with this impeachment inquiry and move from 
targeting the president and the president's family to having a conversation, allegedly an honest conversation, about uh, a lobbyist in Washington, D.C. and the peddling of influence, according to Congressman Raskin. Uh, the use of the Biden family name for uh, business purposes is no, not illegal. Uh, and that this entire impeachment inquiry is nothing but political persecution. This has also to do with Hunter Biden's uh, future testimony next Wednesday on uh, the 28th of February. Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, is set to appear also and testify in front of the House, the, the House Oversight uh, Committee uh, in, in the allegations that he has made money through the uh, Biden family name. Back to you, Steph and David. Great. Thank you so much for report your reporting, Louis Martinez in D.C. Great to have you with us, and thanks again. And next up, the Alabama Supreme Court ruled last week that frozen embryos can be considered children under state law. The court says they're entitled to the same legal rights as other unborn children. In the majority 72-72 ruling, Justice Jay Mitchell wrote, Unborn children are children without exception based on developmental stage, physical location, or any other ancillary characteristics. The decision was issued in response to wrongful death suits brought against a fertility clinic in Mobile in 2021. This after a patient broke into an IVF freezer and dropped a number of trays. The ruling allows three couples to sue the facility for wrongful death. And Oregonians in 2020 passed a ballot measure that created the most liberal drug law in the country, decriminalizing the possession of small amounts of illicit drugs and funneling hundreds of millions of dollars in cannabis taxes to addiction recovery services. Now that measure is being reconsidered. Let's take a look. Since Oregon decriminalized the possession of small amounts of illicit drugs, this has become a common sight in the state's most populous city of Portland. People on sidewalks, corners, and benches crouched over torch lighters held up to sheets of tinfoil or meth pipes. This number here? And officers like David Baer issuing drug citations to users. Fentanyl came on the scene at the same time that decriminalization happened, and then we saw an explosion in public drug use downtown, and uh, unfortunately that brought other issues into downtown, such as, you know, gun violence and uh, other crime. Touted as a revolutionary approach at the time, Oregonians passed Measure 110 in 2020. Its goal was to treat addiction as a public health matter, not a crime. It made it so police could issue $100 citations, along with a card that lists the number for an addiction treatment services hotline. Instead of being arrested, the individual would call in exchange for help dismissing this citation. But state data shows only 4% of people who received citations called the hotline. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's most recent annual figures, nationwide, drug overdose deaths rose 7 tenths of a percent to more than 109,000 Americans in 2023. Compared to the previous year, Oregon's increase over that period was 11%. Facing public pressure amid the surge in overdose deaths, state lawmakers are preparing to vote on recriminalization. Democrats, who are the state house majority, are pushing for a bill to make small-scale drug possession a low-level misdemeanor, punishable by up to 30 days in jail, with the opportunity to seek treatment instead of facing charges. It became very, very obvious that what was happening on the streets of Portland and what was happening on Main Street, Oregon, was unacceptable. And we could not wait any longer 
to wait for the system to catch up, we needed to do something immediately. The proposed bill also carries harsher sentences for drug dealers, wider access to medication for opioid addiction, and expanded recovery and housing services along with drug prevention programs. But Republican lawmakers say the bill doesn't go far enough. Their proposal includes up to a year in jail for drug possession, with the option for treatment and probation instead of jail time. The Biden administration is addressing vulnerabilities at U.S. maritime ports that could be exploited by hackers. According to U.S. officials, President Biden is issuing an executive order that requires U.S. ships and port facilities to report cyber attacks. The directive also gives the Coast Guard greater authority to inspect or control ships that present a possible cyber threat. In addition, the order imposes the new cybersecurity requirements on more than 200 Chinese-made cranes at U.S. facilities. The cranes can be controlled remotely, meaning hackers can access the network and collect intelligence. These changes come after FBI Director Christopher Wray told Congress Chinese hackers are preparing to wreak havoc on U.S. critical infrastructure. And courses on communism may soon become mandatory in Florida's public schools. The Sunshine State's senators passed a new bill Tuesday. If it becomes law, public schools in Florida would be required to have lessons on the history of communism in all grades, beginning as early as kindergarten. If the measure gets the okay from lawmakers, it could take effect in 2026. The lessons would reportedly include teachings about atrocities in communist countries. State Senator Jay Collins is sponsoring the bill. He said it's critical to educate young minds and that young people shouldn't view communism in a positive light. A poll in 2020 shows that only 63% of both Gen Z and millennials believe the Declaration of Independence better guarantees freedom and equality over the Communist Manifesto. Public schools in Florida currently have courses on communism in seventh grade, plus in high school social studies classes. And a push to better understand Chinese battle tactics is happening inside the U.S. military. U.S. Army Pacific hosted its first course on China's war strategies back in early February in Hawaii. Officials said the effort aimed to help service members develop an accurate and holistic understanding of the Chinese Communist Party and its military. 23 service members and civilians learned about China's strategic thinking through a wartime game, a war game and interactive exercises. An officer noted the importance of building foundational knowledge about the Chinese military right now, as it took 30 years for the U.S. military to become experts on threats from the Soviet Union at the time. And next we had to Europe with some short headlines from the U.K., Turkey and other countries. European Union members approved a 13th package of Ukraine-related sanctions against Russia today. The move bans nearly 200 entities and individuals. Its targets are roughly split between entities that are part of Russia's military-industrial complex and those allegedly involved in trafficking and kidnapping Ukrainian children. Beyond that, two more entities were also added, one North Korean and one Belarusian firm. Hundreds of Hungarian farmers protested this month against green regulations imposed on them by the EU and the suspension of import taxes on Ukrainian agricultural products for another year to 2025. Import taxes for Ukrainian grains were originally suspended in 2022. That was done to support Ukraine's economy following the Russian invasion. 
but it's been a point of contention for European farmers who say it creates unfair competition. The protesting farmers held banners criticizing Brussels and the EU at a border crossing point with Ukraine. Former WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange faces his last chance to stop his extradition from Britain to the U.S. American prosecutors want him tried on 18 counts related to the release of confidential U.S. military records. Britain approved his extradition to the U.S. in 2022. His legal team is trying to overturn that approval at a two-day hearing. Their argument is that previous judges failed to address their case, that the extradition was politically motivated. Here's Assange's wife outside London's Royal Courts of Justice today. This part be brought to an end and that um, the court uh, allow Julian to be free. Uh, he's a political prisoner and he needs his freedom. He has been in prison for five years. Turkey's first fifth-generation fighter jet completed its first flight today. That's part of the country's efforts to upgrade its air force. NATO member Turkey launched its project to produce a national combat aircraft in 2016. As of today, it shared a video showing a fighter jet taking off and then returning to an airbase in North Ankara. The new fighter jet will initially be powered by two electric engines. They, these are also being used on fourth-generation Lockheed Martin F-16 jets. And coming up, a nonprofit music archive and its 3 million records is looking for a new home. The vinyl collection includes genres ranging from rock and roll and blues to African punk, country hip hop, and experimental. A Tokyo fish market, known for its vast bounty of seafood, expands. A new restaurant and spa complex will soon open its doors to shoppers. More shortly, here on NTD News Today. The Archive of Contemporary Music and its 3 million sound recordings left New York City in 2020 after the rent got too high. But now it may need to find a new location once again. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the collection. B. George founded the Archive of Contemporary Music in 1985. He started the nonprofit with his own collection of 47,000 records. It's since grown to more than 3 million. The Archive, um started in about 1985, and the whole purpose was to try to preserve two copies of every recording ever made. So a very simple task, and um, some people say we're like the dumpster of pop music. Genres range from rock and roll and blues to African, punk, country, hip-hop, and experimental. There are album covers signed by the Rolling Stones, Queen, David Bowie, among many others. It's hard to put a value on it, but we have a really nice collection. It's about 1,200 uh, LPs in mint condition, and that was appraised with a formal appraisal of $1.6 million. George's goal is to preserve two copies of every recording ever made, one listening copy and a second archival copy. So the whole idea is to get this all organized and then work towards making it a research center a center for popular music, to go from just an archive to a library, which means things could be checked out or loaned or listened to. With permit issues at the archive's current location, George hopes to find a new public space. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A trial is underway in New York for an unusual criminal case. It involves handwritten lyrics to the iconic rock song Hotel California by the Eagles. 
Three defendants are accused of scheming to stop Eagles co-founder Don Henley from reclaiming the allegedly stolen lyrics. The trial centers around over 80 pages of lyric drafts from the Hotel California album. It's one of the best-selling records in the U.S. The defendants have pleaded not guilty to conspiracy charges. They're well-known figures from the collectibles world. Their lawyers argue that the case lacks evidence of criminal activity. And Tokyo's fish market is known for its vast bounty of seafood from skewered prawns to huge tuna. Now a new restaurant and spa complex is opening its doors at the market. Entity's Andrew Thomas tells us what's cooking. The Tsukiji fish market in Tokyo moved to Toyosu in 2018. Now a new installation called Toyosu Senyaku Banrai is enhancing the atmosphere. The indoor facility provides controlled environment with amenities such as air conditioning. A stark contrast to the heat and discomfort experienced at the former market. This is a closed facility and there is an air conditioner, so it's useful in the summer, although there is no heater here. Tsukuji market was really hot, which was harmful to both fish and us humans. Yasuhiro Yamazaki is a wholesaler at the market. He emphasizes the comprehensive inspections performed on fish, especially those from Fukushima, to ensure safety and quality. I think fish from Fukushima is the safest because we do screening checks on all kinds of the fish from small to big, one by one. We look closely at them. With this solid evidence, I can provide fish from Fukushima with confidence. Yamazaki adds that the new spa and restaurant complex will complement the fish market. As it's located right next to the market, it will play a good role in creating a lively atmosphere. The lively atmosphere is crucial. The increase in visitors will create a positive effect on both sides, so I'm excited to see how things develop here. Author and historian Kiyoko Fukushi has documented the fish market's history. Tsukiji has a nearly 90-year-old history, with the concerns about its facilities aging and some corridors being too narrow. The market was moved from Tsukiji to Toyosu in 2018. She says she's excited to try a tuna burger sourced directly from a wholesaler at the market. Here is considered the mecca of sushi, but there is also a unique restaurant in Sankyaku Benrai where fisheries intermediate wholesalers sell tuna burgers. I find it interesting. The complex officially opened February 1st. Now restaurants and spas are busy preparing for an influx of diners and guests. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And next we swap from seafood to produce. Spinach is a popular choice at the dinner table for some and a beneficial addition to your plate. This leafy green vegetable is known for supporting vision, brain function and bone health. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Dark leafy green vegetables are a vital component often missing in the American diet. You'll want to offer some spinach next time you're at the grocery store. This is because it boasts a wealth of essential vitamins, minerals, phytochemicals and bioactive substances. Spinach contains an abundance of beta-carotene, folic acid, vitamin C, calcium, iron, phosphorus, sodium and potassium. Additionally, it is also a good source of antioxidants. Let's look at five specific health benefits starting with number one. Protects vision health and prevents cataracts and macular degeneration. 
Spinach is a nutrient-dense vegetable with high levels of lutein and zeaxanthin. These organic pigments are essential for maintaining optimal eye health. These carotenoids also protect against macular degeneration and cataracts. Number two, preserves brain health and delays cognitive decline. Spinach contains magnesium, lutein, folic acid, beta-carotene, and chlorophyll quinone. All of these support brain health. Number three, lowers blood pressure to prevent cardiovascular disease. Consuming nitrate-rich spinach can increase nitric oxide levels. This can promptly decrease blood pressure, which positively affects cardiovascular health. Number four, prevents osteoporosis. Spinach is rich in vitamin K and calcium and contains vitamin D. These are crucial for maintaining bone health and preventing osteoporosis. And number five, prevents skin aging. Spinach is essential in maintaining healthy skin. This is because it contains vitamins A, C, E, and K. Spinach is also very versatile. You can add it to soups, stews, stir fries, salads, and smoothies. You'll also want to aim for organic spinach. This is because it's well known for being sprayed with lots of pesticides. In other words, the bugs love it too. Love is conquering the cold in Toronto as an eyewitness captures someone spelling out a message of affection in Snowy Love Park. This video was shot from a tall building. It shows a person walking inside the park's iconic giant heart shape and creating the letters M plus J forever. The Canadian city has been under a winter weather and travel advisory for the past few days amid snowfall and icy conditions. That does look like a lot of ice and snow right there. Yeah, I hope uh, the ice artist is okay. Yeah, they seem determined at least, at the very least. Well, that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more stories tomorrow.